This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Rivka Galchin read her story, Crown Heights North, from the January 1st and 8th, 2024 issue of the magazine. Galchin is the author of three books of fiction, including the story collection American Innovations and the novel Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, which was published in 2021. Now here's Rivka Galchin. Crown Heights North. The dead man decided to try the running app. He hadn't run for years, not since his mid-30s. Now he was in his early 50s. Or he had been in his early 50s, recently enough. Would he be in his early 50s forever? He tapped the gray oblong and waited as the percentage downloaded dial advanced, slowly, Much has yet to be revealed, he whispered to himself, in a tone he had used more often when he was a kid, when he had expected his life to resemble a tale of adventure, or of horror, or one with a mystery to solve, or a magical stone to obtain. He felt kind of embarrassed, but why, and in front of whom? He had heard good things about the app, and he didn't want to run, quote, alone. A voice to keep him company It was like that Ray Bradbury story he'd read so many times when he was young. Even after he knew its trick, the story was still compelling. In it, an automated voice in a house says things like, 9.15, time to clean. Which poem would you like this evening? And, since you express no preference, I shall select a poem at random. Eventually it becomes clear that a nuclear apocalypse or something of that sort has wiped out the family and probably humanity, but that the house persists, trying to tend to people who will never return. Did they still teach that story to kids, now that houses really did speak to them, and vice versa? Anyhow, he, the dead man, was up for the companionship of a recorded voice. His wife, through his illness, had said that this running app kept her sane. The app consisted of a bunch of guided runs, in which various people, coaches, meditation gurus, professional athletes, unappealing artists, talked to you while you ran. At the end of each run, you received data, how far you'd gone and where and at what pace. You could earn badges like a Girl Scout or a soldier, his wife had told him. They just speak cheerful nonsense to you, and it's somehow really reassuring, she said. She sat by his bed in the ICU, sharing little thoughts with him, even when he couldn't answer her. She told him about a movie in which one of the main characters wore large headphones in most of the scenes, and you could hear what he was hearing and not hear what he wasn't hearing, and it had given her a headache. In Oases of Wellness, when not intubated, he told her about his ICU deliriums. They were hellscapes beyond anything he had ever read or imagined, with horrifying, yet vague and shifting, predicaments and hostile beings and also with furniture somehow of impossible sizes, and the telling failed to communicate the terror, and the only gentle moment he could recall from vision after vision of threat was the feeling, briefly, of a sleepy and benign panther that lived beneath his hospital bed. Why had he never heard or read about this overwhelming phenomenon? 
He wished it could be transcribed, but it turned as if into lint when he surfaced into full consciousness. Often when he couldn't speak, his wife would read aloud to him, which she knew he perceived, because the measurements of his blood pressure and heart rate on the forever monitors would settle down in response to her ongoing voice. She read Trollope to him. She read the writings of Julian of Norwich. She read The Lord of the Rings, which his dad had read to him when he was a child. But she decided to stop when the plot moved from parties with hobbits and elves to endless wars. She apologized that she wasn't allowed to bring in their dog, who missed him. That was then. Now company, even that of a recorded voice, was probably more than a good idea. This is a necessary part of the adventure, the dead man said to himself. He scrolled through the guided run options. A stress-free run. A running-for-more-purpose run. A running-for-joy run. A menstruation and training run, split into two 30-minute blocks. A running-for-creativity run. Okay, so this is not marketed to me, he thought. All the better. He settled on a comeback run, guided by the app's global head coach. The app asked if he wanted to input which sneakers he was wearing for the run. He did not, though he felt some sympathy with the practice of hawking wares. It had seemed so tiresome for so long, but now it seemed to him eternal. He hadn't been remembering much, other than the nightmare of the hospital, but now a memory surfaced, asking for his attention. As a young man, he had visited the Sinai Peninsula. He ate cucumbers and sliced spam in a beach shack near the Red Sea. Later, he had visited a wadi, where he noticed a figure crossing the vast, shadeless sands. What unfathomable intuitions and desires move a person from here to there across a hostile desert, he had wondered. During those travels, he had been reading The Tale of Genji and Moby Dick and the works of Thomas Brown and other things far from his lived experience, but also near since they were from his roommate's bookshelf. The figure arrived. She unfurled her thin cerulean blue scarf and laid out bracelets earrings, a few pins. She was hawking wares. Okay, 15 minutes. He stepped out into his same old but somehow not neighborhood, the same mixture of Caribbean immigrants and Orthodox Jews and pale youngish people who drank iced coffee with surreal frequency. You showed up, the recorded voice said, which maybe isn't something you were able to do yesterday. The dead man started to jog slowly with his weak, deconditioned legs. It's not that I don't care where you were yesterday or the day before. I do care. But I care more that you're here now. He did not feel like a gazelle or even like a chubby dog. His arms felt heavy, his fists like clay. I want to celebrate that you're here. Celebrating starting lines is as important as celebrating finish lines. Someone had suggested to his wife that she hire a death doula, but she knew him well enough to know that he did not want a death doula, and he reminded her of the time they visited a friend who had recently given birth, and she educated them on the benefits of placenta smoothies and served them cookies with breast milk. Support, coaching, advice, in-touchness, it was all adjacent to unbearable. 
But the global head coach's voice, he didn't turn it off. As he ran, he felt a compression on his calves, not wholly unlike the inflatable cuffs they had put on his legs in the hospital. He listened as the coach chatted about having taught high school history and coached track for seven years, and how in that time he had seen victories and defeats and heartbreak and tremendous strength. A small harpoon feeling assaulted the dead man's forearm, and a muffled ringing sounded in his head. The global head coach said that he often messed up his own comeback runs by expecting too much from them. It's very difficult, coach went on, to go from the state of not running to the state of running. And what's awesome and brave is to run easy because the best comeback run is one that leaves you feeling ready to come back and run again tomorrow. It's funny, the dead man thought as he ran around his neighborhood park listening to coach because... If I were to have imagined hell, it would have a voiceover, like coach, and a landscape in which everything was the same, but also completely wrong, sapped of love, hell. And yet, since he was running by the same trees and houses and torn plastic bags that he and his wife had again and again walked by, and what with love being a mystery and time a conundrum, this place also converged with a vision of heaven. The north side of Crown Heights, maybe because he had lived there when he was ill, was where, sorry, but it was true, he told himself, life had revealed itself to be an abundance, a gift. Mornings, a convention of dogs would manifest in the park. Some dogs dedicated themselves to speed, others to shade, others to winning over the affection of strangers or to retrieving orange rubber balls, or running laps with an impromptu gang of other dogs, whoever had turned up that day. What a just society. The owners were mostly weird, sure. The dogs represented an alternative and superior value system, he had decided. Though he wondered if the nearness of death had messed with his perception, like those gas station sunglasses of childhood road trips. At the courts near the field of dogs, beautiful young men, and occasionally a few women, played basketball. The park had a butterfly garden and skateboarding ramps and ledges and a handball court. There was often a man who knit with yarn the colors of the Jamaican flag, and a cheerful drug dealer with a female bulldog who wore a blue sweater. And there were children on scooters with orthodox moms who looked like teenagers, and maybe were teenagers. Unexpected sequel, he thought, for a neighborhood most famous decades earlier for the death of a young child hit by a car in a blue-eyed rabbi's motorcade which ran a red light and then days of angry crowds in the street and the murder of a visiting student. The rabbi, who had since died, still appeared, smiling, on large stickers on the back of most crosswalk lights in the neighborhood, along with the words, Messiah is here. Then the run was over. He started to run every day, following nearly the same path each time. Around the park, then around the park again, maybe inside the park, then around it one more time. It felt good. He didn't want to stray from that loop. He was reluctant to go beyond the familiar space. He got stronger, breathed less heavily, could run more laps. He downloaded in advance the runs that appealed to him, 
then page through his library of runs. Runs organized by time appealed to him, not those organized by distance. He liked, quote, recovery runs. The ever-buoyant global head coach, who was the corniest coach, but also the one he chose the most often, insisted that most runs should be recovery runs. Sometimes he chose runs with, quote, intervals, where you were asked to run, then rest, then run, then rest, and the whole time you'd be told how strong you were, how good you looked, how proud this person who knew nothing about you was. It was infantile, and it was the result of years of research into how to get a person to push a button and move through space on command. It was a pleasure, which was not what he had spent his life, or most of it, seeking, as his wife had told him, when he said he disliked barbecues, picnics, and sunset walks on beaches. It became as if all he was doing was running. During a run one overcast afternoon, the dead man had the sensation that he could hear his heart beating in his left ear. In his weeks in the ICU, or maybe it was months, time wasn't a destroyer so much as a whirlpool. He had been convinced that he could feel his pancreas startle and secrete. He could see into his own body and watch the enzymes, which looked like spilled mercury, asserting themselves, raying out along a confused net of vessels. It was the Edgar Allan Poe story not written, he thought. In moments that resembled clarity, from his hospital bed, he composed letters in his mind to the heads of medical research departments about what he was seeing. There should be interventions to protect people from having to traverse these menacing lands, he thought. At one point, he was being held firmly at the wrist by a woman in a purple cap who informed him that she was bringing him some ice and that his throat might feel sore. He remembered the feeling, as a child, of being inside an adventure at the mouth of a cave within which dwelled maybe a wizard or an ogre, a false oracle or a real one, and the decision to be made was whether to ask a question or to knock on the door or to wield a longbow or a morning star. And then, at the periphery, his mom saying that she had left a grilled cheese sandwich on the kitchen counter and that she had to go and that she was sorry they were out of pickles. She would try to get some, but she was very busy. She was gone. The woman in purple told him he would feel more relaxed soon. He worried or hoped for a moment that he was still alive, that his conviction that he had died was only one more hostility, a word he often misread as hospitality. But who, even in a dream or hallucination, would choose the adventure of dying in a hospital where the lights were always on, where alarms sounded constantly, where potions moved through you as if through an unrenovated sewage processing plant. The run is done. You are awesome. Now get some fluids. He was getting stronger. Fifteen minutes would go by like a coffee. And running now felt like a crossing over from an ordinary life or death full of pain and anxiety into a better life or death, filled with more bearable kinds of pain and anxieties that could fit into a pocket. Still, he didn't run out to new neighborhoods. He felt the need to stay close to home, to not fall off into realms beyond his map. Out there, they were probably just hawking wares, incense, hazelnut cookies, button-up dress shirts, 
He wanted to stay within bounds. It was the opposite of the missions in the stories he had read when he was young. To find a way out of a peril-filled maze. To escape from a place where doors opened on their own when a secret but large metal button on a wall was pushed. Later plots, termed literature, were often still childlike stories about finding a way home or recovering lost time, his wife had pointed out to him during some of their first meals together, when personal conversations were still translated into impersonal observations. He had liked that. Maybe he was under a spell, and his comrades had been turned into pigs, and he had been lulled into running the same loop, again and again, around the familiar park, so that he wouldn't notice he was captive. And the feat he had to accomplish was to notice and to break his pattern. And then there they were, traffic cones and security tape. The street in front of the park was blocked off. It was the funeral, a man wearing a tank top and walking a marble cake-colored dog told him. A line of officers was assembled along the block adjacent to the park, and then across the street and on over to the Nazarene church that was previously a synagogue and which still had the Hebrew lettering on its frieze. A bird rested on the small cross atop the building's dome. The dead man asked a man standing in shorts with his arms crossed, who died? It was an officer who had been shot, off duty. Something random was the sense. Just outside a deli, killed by a stranger, not something directed at him, or even at the genre of him as a police officer. It's an outrage, a voice behind him said. Cars that had been parked along the path of the funeral procession had been towed to God knew where. A row of men in kilts began walking in tandem with bagpipes. With them was a line of drummers. They do whatever they want. They answer to nobody. They're an institution of assholes, was being said by a guy with an ice drink to his companion who wore a jumpsuit. A woman the dead man recognized as active in the church. She ran the Easter egg hunt. She took care of the plants at the perimeter. Was telling another woman that she knew the grieving mother. Her son had been in a coma for nearly three decades. So he had died a long time ago but was dying only now. We're all dying, the iced coffee guy said. No one's going to tow cars for me. One disappointment about being dead, so far, was that he had assumed that in dying, he would learn something. Or his first assumption was that when he died, there wouldn't be anything at all, let alone knowledge. But trailing behind that assumption was a firefly of hope. What was here? There were sparrows and paper clips. There were books, babies, post-it notes with phone numbers, compost bins with graffiti, ambulance sirens, a statue of a Dalmatian. But as an afterlife, was this interesting, informative? Back in his 30s, when for a spell he had run often, he had enjoyed the way it shook out little unexpected thoughts. Like, tartan plaids make sense, given how weaving works. Or, the row must have had secrets. He had termed these unpursued thoughts popcorn. A happy word for him, 
connected to the stovetop popcorn in those disposable aluminum pans with the balloon of thin foil that would pleasingly inflate and fill with popcorn, though sometimes the kernels burned. The struggle run. Why not? The uncertainty of love, the certainty of death, one faced these things. But could he really care? On too many days, in his last months, thinking had lost its allure. He was more interested in watching a kid get frustrated by the difficulty of swimming down to the bottom of the pool to pick up coins. The water kept sending him back up. Boundless blessings was what he was supposed to think about life. He was so angry. The global head coach told him that struggle is about contending with a problem. Struggle is not about failing, but about succeeding in not giving up. Struggle was a particularly misleading term in relation to illness. He could have altered his outcome in no way. At one point, delirious with what was termed medication, he woke in the middle of the night, gripped his wife's arm, and said, I have been seduced by the lie of metaphysics. Later, when his wife told him this, they laughed. But being asleep was a castaway island with no ships on the horizon. Coach said, When we struggle, we're never alone. We beat ourselves up because it's easier than picking ourselves up. Late in his illness, he had a conversation in his office with Ben, his colleague. Ben had come from an Orthodox family, but had turned away from it. Or something. My father had a lot of medical problems. He really cursed God, but that's because he was like the prophets, Ben was saying to him or at him. He struggled with God. Ben could speak unceasingly if not interrupted, and it wasn't easy to interrupt him. Oblivious to the dead man's own struggle, Ben talked on, hoarding the dead man's time, although his ramblings which were heartfelt, now and again crossed over into the dead man's own concerns. You know, the prophets, they struggled with God too. It's about that struggle. He spoke of how the words Jesus said on the cross were, translated from the Aramaic, Father, why have you forsaken me? That was my dad. That was his inner life. Ben was struggling too, having been raised only to be a scholar in an imaginary messianic landscape, and having left that imaginary landscape for the, quote, real landscape, what was he supposed to do? People who think God is a person who gives out candy to some people and not to others, that's so wrong. He explained that it was like the Jews in the desert complaining, and God said, come to me. And they said, why? And he said, because I'm God. And they said, it's not a good enough reason. They said, come to us. And he said, why? And they said, because we've suffered. And he said, that's not a good enough reason. Even when you were dying, people yammered on about themselves. You could never get that time back. It was returning to him. Being alive had become a hell on earth. Had his life been, after all, a tale of adventure, of horror? Did the ending make any sense? He had felt love in his life, and where could it be found now? 
He saw, at the edge of the familiar park, that mysterious expanse of sand he had visited as a young man. He saw again in the distance a woman heading toward him. What intuition or desire could be sending her out across that hostile, shadeless expanse? As she neared, it was not without some sense of surprise that the thought arrived that maybe a different kind of story waited for him, one he had never read before, one that he wouldn't have to read alone. You're awesome, the global head coach said. I'm so proud. That was Rivka Galchin reading her story, Crown Heights North. She's been writing fiction and nonfiction for The New Yorker since 2008. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Teju Cole reads One Equals One by Anne Carson. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.